fake, fake, fakeity fake. Hi, I'm Jody. And I'm Vienna. And welcome to Imperial News, where I spend my whole week listening to the far-right podcast Rebel News and talk about James Lindsay with my friend Vienna. Oh, joy. Can't wait for him. So love that dude. Yeah. <laughs> How are you, Vienna? <laughs> it's very, I must say, it's very weird asking you this question because we had a delay. We already sort of went through this and then we scrapped that recording because we had some uh, technical issues, but uh, we're going to pretend like that never happened. <laughs> we're going to pretend like that never happened by bringing up in the actual recording. <laughs> kind of explain why we're so jovial going into it. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe we're just having fun together, <laughs> And that, and that we are. <laughs> but tell, since I already know, but you might as well tell the audience how you're feeling. I'm tired and I'm exhausted with winter. Yes. How are you? I, as I have already told you, I am also exhausted <laughs> with winter. And uh, I just started taking my kid to school again and all that fun stuff. I will say, I am feeling great though. This is going to be a good recording. I just got boosted on Monday. I was out for like three days with side effects, either side effects or like they're saying it could be the nocebo effect. So maybe I, it was all just in my head. Uh, <laughs> but uh, either way, fuck off, whoever said that. <laughs> I read some study. It's it's possible. And the thing is, I'll never know whether or not I was the nocebo or real side effects of person. Either way. Doctors just love to ignore people with symptoms of anything, so it's just like, fuck off. Like, no, I'm not buying that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I highly doubt it. Too. Well, some of it, too, is like, I'm sure, like, the nocebo effect can have, like, certain, like, physiological things, but, like, uh, with with not just me, but also my wife, like, our armpit glands hurt a bit from side effects, and so it's like, I'm not, like, can a nocebo effect that deep i haven't read enough about the nocebo to know but maybe maybe not i don't know either way i feel better now and that is all that matters right <laughs> sure so uh go get your booster i mean i'm exaggerating the extent to which i felt the side effects they were they were quite mild in the grand scheme of things i was just like uh you know discombobulated for a couple of days and now i'm back uh to normal i guess so uh go get boosted uh Save yourself from uh, getting severely impacted by Omicron. And uh, yeah, I think that's good. Jody, don't you know natural immunity is good enough? You know, uh, we listen to a podcast that tells me that every time I listen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> the funny thing is like I almost, I you know, I bring it up every once in a while. But they say it almost every single episode about natural immunity. And it's just like, my God, my God. Uh, anyways, we, I said this last week, but I'll say it again. We are recording a video portion of this podcast. Uh, it'll be up on our Patreon. So if you want to go check that out, all you have to do is donate at any level and you will have access to a video version, unedited version of this podcast. I edited it just a little bit, uh, for the audio one so that things run just a, a bit more smoother and to remove some like audio glitches and whatever. But uh, if you want to see it all and it's, it's raw, pure energy <laughs> in visual format for our, our, you need our facial reactions. <laughs> if you want to see me frequently roll my eyes, 
and look generally tired. Yeah. But beyond that, we will just jump right into it. Uh, as I said before, too, just to catch people up in case you're jumping in now, we uh, have ditched the uh, Imperial Roundup segment, and I think it worked out the first time, so we're going to try it again, and uh, we'll just get right into it. Hello, my rebels. Hello, my rebels. I'm a good boy. I'm a weirdo. So we are covering uh, the week of January 10th to January 14th of this time. And on January 10th, it begins with Ezra ruminating, ruminating, I guess, on uh, the the two-minute hate in 1984. So have you have you read 1984, uh, Vienna? <laughs> no, I think I've only read Animal Farm. And even then, oh. that was like when I was a kid. Are you aware of the two-minute hate, though? Or is that a new... No, I've never heard that phrase before in my life. All right. So Ezra himself says that he never understood what it was until now. So now he's like, he's figured it out. What the... Okay. <laughs> I guess we'll just jump right to a clip then, because I think he kind of explains what it is in this clip uh, by also comparing uh, how we view unvaccinated people to uh, they're they're compared to the Jews of the Holocaust. So uh, that's fun. We get more. Uh... He makes that comparison. Well, he's made it several times, but yes, the anti uh, unvaccinated are now uh, Jews, basically. <laughs> uh and somehow this is related to uh, George Orwell's 1984. So here we go. Best to get angry at some scapegoat. In Alberta, it's that annoying pastor, Arthur Pavlovsky, or in Toronto, it was that annoying restaurateur, Adam Skelly, or whoever. But best to demonize the unvaccinated. It, it, it fits right in with the proven demonology used by the Nazis. Jews were unclean. That was literally a Nazi propaganda line. Just just refresh it and put in the unvax. So, okay. This is a side note from the actual point, but did he call Adam Skelly annoying? Yeah, the reason why he's framing them as annoying uh, in the context of the, the full clip is that they're annoying the police officers, right? So he's speaking like from the perspective of the government who's annoyed with these people who are speaking out. I, I don't okay. think he's actually saying they're annoying human beings. <laughs> See, I didn't notice it with Pavlovsky at first, so I thought he was just specifically calling skelly annoying and i was like that's very like well ironically like we do find them annoying so it's like a fitting <laughs> he's in some ways he's not wrong that people like us will like perceive them as being annoying right like i guess if you want to say ezra's right about something that's the one part of this he is right about he's just also wrong to think that this has anything to do uh with the holocaust and i mean like they do it is true that there was anti-Semitic uh, arguments made by the Nazis about cleanliness and how the Jews were unclean. Like, that is true. And I guess they get to sort of, like, transpose because, like, right now we're dealing with a disease. So when you say the, un like, the unvaccinated become, like, more susceptible to disease. But, like, these were leveraged in different ways, uh, including that, like, there's nothing about being Jewish that, like made you more or less transmitting of a disease, you know what I mean? Other than maybe social contingencies that placed Jews in circumstances where it made them more vulnerable, whereas, like, in this case, there is a real pandemic, right? <laughs> the, 
ironic thing too is that like rebel news has already weaponized this because we watched that clip last week that was their french reporter i forget her name going to yeah going to the quebec and new york border crossing and like talking shit about these like refugees and like migrants and immigrants type of thing crossing the border quote-unquote illegally and being like oh are they vaccinated oh are they getting covid tests oh blah 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 and it's like that is literally like the same framing as like what it was for jewish people in the sense of like these people are unclean they're diseased they're they spread they're the cause of all of the spread of like disease and death within our like communities and everything like that and it's you know it's the same thing that gets made about like mexicans and like i guess other migrants as well crossing the mexican border in the united states where it's like they for like the better part of a century used to like gas those people when they cross the border i think that they still might in terms of like migrant workers and stuff like that where it's like you know the argument is to get rid of like lice and stop like typhus or whatever and again that is literally the excuse that they used to get jewish people into the gas chambers was like oh yeah this is just delousing so that you can be at the work camp type of thing and then like that's literally the argument that they use <laughs> for fucking everybody else and then they're just like oh, oh we we don't want to get vaccinated and that hurts our feelings when people say that we are contributing to the spread of a deadly virus that we are in fact contributing to and are like defend our ability to spread like uh, like it it would be one thing like if if like immigrants came are coming from a place where there is a more uh let's say uh this particular disease a particular disease is more common there and so you make you screen them before coming in or something like this i mean we even do this uh, like or we did this back when h1n1 was happening as well like we screen people for diseases when it becomes uh important to do so right but then the thing is like that is again screening for a disease but often like as you said like we didn't cover this on the podcast last time we covered it on stream but the clip was uh we immigrants were coming across or refugees i should say were coming across the border at roxham road from new york to quebec and alexa who's a rebel employee was leveraging the fact that they could be bringing covid over the border but that is like a silly argument to make when like covid is already endemic here like there's no amount that a few refugees could bring that would make our circumstance any more worse than it already is because what we're doing already internally in our country you know and so it's like it's silly to like sort of try to police them and like oh my god refugees are coming here unvaccinated which as you pointed out is largely the case because we're not supplying vaccines to other countries so it's like of course they're probably not vaccinated not like because they don't want to but because it wasn't available to them and also like being here might increase the chance that they will get vaccinated so it's like weird like they leverage they leverage it when it's useful for them in terms of like immigration. But when it comes to this shit, it's like, oh no, we uh, an unvaccinated person can't eat at Chuck E. Cheese, so therefore, like, we're in Nazi Germany. Like, it's it is absurd. It is so fucking absurd. 
and not like I already mentioned like the 1984 thing like this the reason why he brought this up was because he he wants to make some connection with this idea from 1984 this two minute hate so the idea is that the liberal government is set up to uh get everyone to to get riled up and yell at the unvaccinated as like our prime enemy and i guess in 1984 what the uh you know big brother and the the government does is it has these things in the morning where everyone goes and yells at their enemy for two minutes and they get all riled up and then like they do that like every day and so apparently that's happening to us but to the unvaccinated sorry do they get to yell at them and the the enemies have to listen no, or is it like just they yell about a... They're like oh, okay, watching a propaganda video. Yeah, yeah. You know, if I got to, like, yell at Trudeau to his face for two minutes a day, yeah, that would improve my mood, I think. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, yelling at Trudeau is one thing, I mean, but it's like he thinks that this is happening to unvaccinated people, which is like... I. Maybe we could say it would be nice if people were a little bit more... <laughs> but, like, part of me is also, it's like, you talk to a lot of leftists, and I think this is good... Is most of us go, it's like unvaccinated people have been sold a bill of goods for people like Rebel, and that like I've I feel less bad for them for being indoctrinated than a system that allows people like Ezra to constantly promote this shit, you know? Yeah. No, and like a healthcare system that alienates people enough that they don't trust it either. Like, you know, it's I don't know, it's not a like individual problem, it's a systemic problem. Surprise, surprise. So you, you're going to find with this, uh, our podcast today, <laughs> a lot of uh, weird Nazi illusions and anti-Semitism is going to come up. And it continues in the next clip I'm about to play. So Ezra's going on with this two-minute hate stuff. And then he refers to this incident that happened in Quebec, where I guess a pro-vax person called a synagogue and started uh, saying anti-Semitic things to the person who works at the synagogue who picked up the phone. Now, and then they recorded it. And so Ezra plays the clip. I'm not going to play it. Uh, you, I agree that it was anti-Semitic. So, so you get the point. <laughs> you don't need me mm. to play it. But I will uh, play Ezra's response afterwards because he wants to paint that like somebody is responsible for this so let's see who ezra thinks is responsible for the p fact that some anti-semites are calling synagogues because they feel that they're not vaccinating appropriately he's not using extreme anti-semitic language like the the equivalent of the n-word for jews he's not calling for a gas chamber he's, he's not a neo-nazi who has the phraseology of anti-semitism down pat he i think he even sort of said there that he used to be friendly to the Jews, it's just that he thinks Jews are, are breeding disease now, and they're the problem now, and they ought not to be tolerated now, and that was his two minutes of hate. Who told him to do that? Who told him to think that way? Well, the media, the chief fearmongers, of course, but who gave them the direction and, in fact, the moral permission to do that? Well, well, this guy did. We. So I, I ended the clip, but he's suggesting here that somehow the only reason this anti-Semite would call this synagogue is that somehow Justin Trudeau put it in his head to do it. <laughs> True. <laughs> now, 
I, I get some what, what Ezra's going on about here is I guess Macron has been doing this as well. Trudeau and Macron's language towards people who don't get vaccinated has gotten a bit more dare I say spicier. I mean, it's still pretty weak, but they're just like, these are bad people who are not getting vaccinated. You know what I mean? Uh, mm -hmm. and, and so Ezra is responding to that rhetoric and saying that that's enough to like make someone go make a, a, an anti-Semitic call to a synagogue because this person specifically thinks that the Jews are less likely to be vaccinated. The dude was going to call an anti-synagogue and say something bad at some point regardless if he was ever like <laughs> if the thought crosses your mind of like i should call a religious institution <laughs> and like and this guy like he like, told them to go home like like he was using like race like anti-semitic language to this like jews who have probably been in montreal for like forever like <laughs> centuries yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> and so it's like I, I, it's just weird here because like we're going to get to it uh in a bit uh later in the week Ezra is going to say other things that like feeds into anti-semitic tropes and i just want to frame here it's like weird how how often nazi stuff or anti-semitic stuff come up on this podcast when we don't need to in part because he in this case will make weird ass allusions to the holocaust where like in some sense this like downplays the fucking holocaust you know which which you would think that you wouldn't want to do that if you actually think the, that the holocaust was a serious thing you know to compare it to like people not getting vaccinated and then say because our prime minister used somewhat spicy language towards people who wouldn't get vaccinated for a very real disease that has killed 5 million people worldwide that somehow now unvaccinated people are just like the Jews in the Holocaust is uh, a bit much, shall I say? Yeah. So that is that is the 10th. Uh, I will ignore the interview portion because Avi Yamini comes on and, uh, you know, we we love you know, at least Tim, our one Australian fan, so shout out to Tim. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the Aussies don't have much uh, to say here. Well, in this case, I guess there was a thing with a tennis player. Did you hear about this? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. did. I did only because, like, there were people, like, making, like, lists of, like, medals that this this dude and other famous tennis players had, and then, like added a section for deportations and he was the only one with any <laughs> <laughs> nice yeah yeah i i didn't follow it and even when listening to avi and ezra ezra talk about it i was like i am absolutely not interested in this <laughs> it was like low on my level of caring so uh at this point i think it was still up in the air whether or not djokovic would be able to stay in australia in Australia, I think now it he's he's gone. I think they they kicked him out. So, and uh, that's the end of that. <laughs> so we move we move on to the eleventh, and now we get a, another new COVID talking point, which is uh, Ezra plays this clip of a Pfizer executive, where the executive says that two vaccines give limited protection. That is lit literally all the clip says is this Pfizer exec is like, two vaccines are not enough. It only gives limited protection. And Ezra is like, thanks for telling us this now. 
as if like the Omicron variant is not <laughs> it's not new and affects like what people say and change their views on things. Like I I really you would think that they would be able to come up with better conspiracy theories, but you have you have an executive for a pharmaceutical company being like, you know, things were different when things were different. And now that things have changed, things have changed. <laughs> Whoa. And That's Ezra... pretty deep, Jody. <laughs> and Ezra's like, conspiracy! This is all a conspiracy! <sighs> so then Ezra goes from that to his next uh, talking point, which is this uh, proposed unvaxxed tax in Quebec. Oh, yeah. That's a very, like, weird thing to try to institute, I gotta say. Not only is it weird, the fact that it's weird leaves Ezra with nothing really to talk about. And what I mean by that is, like, it's not even clear what the Quebec government wants to do, because it's not clear how you would implement such a tax or how it would work, and they haven't yeah. specified. And so Ezra has nothing to offer other than to be like, oh, no, tax. <laughs> Like, my guess is the way that it's going to work out is they announce this, they see a rapid rise in people booking their first dose because the government announced a weird thing that they're going to try to do that they won't institute until the 2022 tax year or 2023, whatever, you know, because tax season has started, you know, like they're not doing it for this year. They can't just institute that, like, through the past. But also, like, you know, it's the same thing with, like, Quebec has, um, you have to have your, like, vaccine, uh, proof of vaccination for going into uh, cannabis stores and liquor stores now. And they did that, and then, boom, instant, like, rise in the number of people who booked their first doses. Because it's a strategy to get people vaccinated just like everything else related to the vaccine from the governments. Like, yeah, I, I mean, I can't say either way, but my, my initial thoughts about it were like, this is weird. And in looking into it, I, I feel like what you just laid out is the strategy. They were just like, we're going to propose this like fucking weird thing and people are going to panic and go get vaccinated. And therefore we don't need to implement the thing. <laughs> Cause yeah. they did what we wanted like, anyways. Like, yeah. I think they have, like, by, like, way higher, like, deaths per capita than any other province. And I think same with hospitalizations, too. So it's like, yeah, amazingly, a government whose health system is on the verge of collapse is going to do things to try to, like, end that crisis. Yeah, and, like, I'm not even saying, like, that's the best thing for governments to do to, like play with people's minds in that way but at the end of the day i'm like if it gets people vaccinated right now and it saves a few lives like why the hell not because <laughs> yeah, i don't like, i don't see this tax being either constitutional or being able to like go through so yeah no exactly yeah. like it'll never pass anyways so it's kind of like it is a proposal that somebody made yeah. <laughs> that everybody is reporting on as if it might actually happen when it really is just, like, some dude's harebrained scheme. 
I mean, yeah. So Ezra ends the, this episode with getting this guy who he's had on the show before named Franco Terrazano, who is the uh, lead, like, I guess he, he runs the Canadian Taxpayer Federation, which is this conservative think tank thing. And uh, he literally is just on there to be like, Ezra, did you know that taxes are bad? And then Ezra's like, yeah, taxes are bad. And that's... <laughs> entire segment so you know i i had absolutely True. nothing to add to that conversation other than the you know sometimes taxes can be good <laughs> i mean until we're at this state where we don't even have to worry about money altogether you know there we go yeah there we go uh i will say so it, like last week he's beginning to end each episode with like Treya humphrey's clips now this one was a bit weird because last week we got a lot of like doctor clips of like doctors who uh, are usually under investigation or involved in non-traditional medicines, let's say. <laughs> like telling people to go to horse feed stores. But this time she's promoting a clip where she suggests in it that China is trying to commit voter fraud in Canada. And it's not clear to me how they're doing it, even by listening to the clip that she like plays. And I'm and all I can get from it is that they're trying to on Rebel play the same move that's what's happening in the United States right now, where they're yeah. fear-mongering about voter fraud and stuff like this, and how we need more stricter voter ID laws and stuff like this. It's so funny when they try to do this for Canada. Because it really makes it sound like they've never voted before. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's not that complicated. And it's all, like, hand done. There isn't a machine to hack. You would have to go individually, person to person, and be like, hey, I'll give you $100 to vote liberal. Or, like, whatever. Like, there isn't any other way to do it than, like, reaching out individually. Which is extremely fucking easy to catch people doing especially if they're doing it in, like, any large quantities. One of the, the schemes that they kind of bring up in this episode had to do with, like, I guess, using mail-in ballots, like, taking other people's mail-in ballots and, like, voting for them. But again, that, like, that only... That could only be successful if you knew that the people you were voting fraudulently for weren't going to vote. Because if they vote and you vote, that signals to the government, hey, this person has voted twice and becomes a problem, right? Like you, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's and so the, and there's <sighs> steep fines for that. So it's like uh, the, the 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 like incentives are not there to do it, you know, because you'll get like a negligible amount of votes out of it, usually not enough to make any difference whatsoever, and it's like there's a fine there, and you could easily get caught. So it's like, why would you? Why would you do it? See, the easiest route to go with that sort of thing is like, oh, China has taken control of Cup W, and so when they pick up the ballots to bring it, they're changing it then because China controls the postal worker union. That's the easiest conspiracy theory to go with. It's still going to be bullshit and like just way too hard to accomplish, but that one's at least like, you know, maybe, maybe, they, that's a hypothetical, like, two or three postal workers could do that type of thing. It was just the addition of China was the part yeah. of this that made the least amount of sense. I was like, so what, like, 
some like Chinese secret official is somehow going to get his hands on an, like a whole bunch of mail-in votes. And then <laughs> I don't understand this. It really, it all just if, boils down to it's like it's like they hate China and they need to like capitalize on the voter fr- fraud rhetoric of the United States. So they're like, bingo, bango, here we go, we got this. Like, the Communist Party of Canada maintains official relations with the Communist Party of China. You would think they would have won a seat if, or like you know, more than like the ten thousand or fifteen thousand votes nationally that they got in the last federal election. No, you see, that'll be if, too obvious. It'll be too obvious. Yes, that's why the NDP gained five seats or whatever. Really, the the Chinese party wants uh, Trudeau to win. It's a secret Chinese <laughs> communist why- conspiracy for the Liberal government of Canada. Oh, that's why they gave Trudeau a minority government. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. It's so dumb. It it is so dumb, but like I feel like there's a bunch of like Mimas and Peepaws out there that are just spoo- like eating it up. They're like, maybe they're right. China is coming. Oh no. <laughs> I like that that's here. Mimas and Peepaws? Mima and Peepaws voice. <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> All right, so now now it's the January twelfth, middle of the week, and we we get the James Lindsay interview. Now it surprised me that James Lindsay got the entire in the entire show to himself. So if we're comparing it to last week, James Lindsay is the same caliber as a former premier of Newfoundland. <laughs> I would say, I would honestly agree with that, I think. <laughs> like, critical support to Rebel on this decision. James Lindsay is on the same level as the premier of a province with, like, 500,000 people or less. So, before we get into James Lindsay, and in case none of you know who he is, uh, we will go over it. But I want to ask you, Vienno, before we get into it, Based on things that we've covered on stream, because James Lindsay is someone, he's one of those like uh, grifters that I picked up along the way that we've uh, watched some content of theirs on the uh, on the stream. But I'm curious if you TV slash Imperial News. <laughs> if if you're going to invite James Lindsay on your show, based on what we've already covered of his on stream, what do you think that they would be on to talk about? Uh, some bullshit philosopher and how he relates to Marx. I mean, I there's that, and I mean that's always going to come up, like Hegel shit. I should say, like we have a stream segment called Off Hegel Hours, which is spun off some dumb shit that James Lindsay has said. So this is, <laughs> in some ways, we've now incorporated some James Lindsay stuff into our brand. So it's very weird that all of a sudden he would appear on Rebel News, and and that was largely because he said some nonsense about Hegel. But in this case, like, the other thing he's known for is the critical race theory stuff. Oh, okay, yeah. And, and I, would, I was going to say cancel culture, but... Yeah, <laughs> which kind of goes hand in hand with that, too. But the, the odd thing is, the critical race stuff doesn't come up at all throughout this entire thing. Until the very end, and it wasn't even enough to, like, even mention it. It was him basically saying that, like, the Republicans are winning because people are mad at school boards because of critical race theory. And then that, that was, like, it. Has critical race theory stuff, like, dropped off in the U.S.? I haven't really heard much about it recently. Florida, like, just the other day passed a bill saying something like, uh, 
uh, it's illegal to make white people uncomfortable. Oh, yeah, yeah, I did hear about that. I, I haven't looked into it, so I don't know to what extent <laughs> it is illegal or legal to make white people uncomfortable, or if it's in a particular context. I just know people were talking about that online. Hmm. So the, the CRT stuff hasn't, like, gone away. It's, like, still there. But maybe it's... I, I think there's fewer people yelling at school boards. I don't, I don't know. At least you don't hear about it as much. But I will give you the brief rundown now of James Lindsay and how, how I came to know about him and then how he ended up on, uh, I guess, Rebel News. I first heard about James Lindsay on a podcast called Atheistically Speaking which is now Serious Inquiries only, and he's also the co-host of Opening Arguments podcast. And I've promoted Opening Arguments podcast before. It's a great podcast that does, like, legal stuff. But the host, uh, Thomas Smith, had on James Lindsay years ago to talk about a book that James Lindsay had wrote that had to do with how, like, atheists can deal with death. And those were those kind of, like, very... I'm trying to like they're, they're kind of light you know like they weren't really like challenging religion in the same way that other atheist texts were it was more like how to be an atheist or like <laughs> kind of like weird shit like how an atheist deals with death and like that's fine like whatever and it was what it was but like beyond that like the only other thing that he was known for is like he had a do he has a PhD in math and I should say uh, not to take away from people who have math PhDs although we denigrated uh, math before on this podcast and probably will continue to do so. Stick to your numbers, boys. Like, <laughs> get fucked. But uh, so he has a PhD in math, which which is cool. But he even like Ezra, like on YouTube, because they took a clip of this interview and threw it online. They just call him Dr. James Lindsay, which gives him like this weight that is like undeserved because he's not on rebel news to talk about the latest like math proof that he's come up with you know i want to interview james Lindsay and just ask him about math the whole time yeah <laughs> God. just like look him in the eye and be like okay explain what the fuck like fibonacci did and then like in the middle of him like answering just jump in and be like what's five times five yeah and like <laughs> just just try to get him you know <laughs> Given given how long-winded and incoherent he is about other topics, like I, I feel like it'll be worth or worse talking to him about math. Uh, but uh, no, because because like it's just gonna be like straight up like times tables. That's it. Like, <laughs> I'm not going beyond that. <laughs> <laughs> so after so this that that was his early beginnings, I guess. But I I didn't know about this, but. People have since gone back to look at James Lindsay's history, and you could sort of see precursors of where he was going. So, for example, in 2014, he wrote a blog post defending another atheist speaker called, uh, named Peter Bogosian. And I guess Peter Bogosian had some sort of like tweet that he sent out saying uh, gay pride is not a thing or something along those lines. And then got a lot of blowback. So then James Lindsay wrote a blog post defending Peter Bogosian that gay pride is not a thing. And part of their argument is like, well, how, how can you have pride in something that you like never accomplished? Which is like, it, it's not about the accomplishment, it's about persevering. 
given like oppression like <laughs> it's it's just amazing like they couldn't get beyond their uh literal what about the literal definition of pride you know like debate pro tactic they like couldn't get out of their head and of course got trampled online right so you can sort yeah. of see uh those precursors of this kind of like shitty behavior and not listening to people all of this is like brewing in the background and then in 2017 they sort of like stepped out into the world james Lindsay became a little bit more known and this was because he teamed up with peter bogosian again the person he defended in that blog so that's probably they started becoming like best friends after that you know they it turns out they wrote a hoax paper called the uh the conceptual penis and they got it published in a pay-to-play uh, gender studies journal. And so they were like, because this gender studies journal published our hoax paper, that therefore all of gender studies is like fucked and needs uh, Peter and James to come in to, to save it and make it more rigorous because clearly their standards are so bad that they let us publish our stupid hoax paper, even though they literally paid this journal to get it published because <laughs> it was a pay-to-play journal, right? Yes, got him. Now, James walked back, walked back some of his claims about that hoax paper by being like, Oh no, it's a uh, we didn't say that gender studies was bad when we released this, but you really you read all their sort of like press articles that they did uh, announcing the hoax and it's clear they thought that their paper like destroyed gender studies. Then after that, they came back a year later, 2018, this time so it was uh, James Lindsay, Peter Bogosian and their friend Helen Pluckrose and they did what they called a so-called squared. So Alan Sokol is someone who did a hoax paper before them. Uh, his hoax, I would argue, was better, uh, but we don't have to get into it. It was called the hermeneutics of quantum gravity. And so Sokol was a physicist who was like, stop using physics language wrong and wrote a paper using physics terms wrong and got it published. So it was... If you would... <laughs> If you'd use his full name of Southern California, I'd appreciate that. It's it's not even it's spelt with a K, not a C. So it, <laughs> yeah. Anyways, I've met Alan. Actually, he came and spoke to University of Waterloo while I was attending there. Very nice guy. Very chill. Now I would not put him on the same level of James Lindsay, even though they like to uh, piggyback off of like SoCal's uh, work. So uh, just want to say shout out to to Alan. Seems like a really cool dude. Now. <laughs> so they why it's called squared so it was socal squared is because they did many hoaxes just just an abundance of hoaxes and they're not they weren't good like some of them got published i guess like one of them got published in a pretty good uh, journal uh and what it was was i guess they took portions of mind conf and like switched out the word jew for like uh for uh like a man or <laughs> and then uh submitted it to this like feminist journal now they claim like that was like they took they got mein Kampf published in a feminist journal journal but like there was tons of edits so by the time it like finally got published it was almost like indistinct like you could not recognize that it was mein Kampf at all 
mm-hmm. and there's no way to to make uh, those connections. You know, I, I mean, the other flip side of this is that like it's weird to say like there's there's some like essential thing to like the words in Mein Kampf, which is like I'm pretty sure there's like benign sentences in it, like. I opened a door, which like, you know, you could have that sentence republished in a feminist journal, even though like you say it came from Mein Kampf and that doesn't really like, it's not spooky is what I'm saying. (laughs) It contains no icky content, you know? Jody saying there are some parts of Mein Kampf that are all right. Okay. (laughs) I'm saying there's some kinds out of context that are benign is probably a better way of putting it. A lot of other stuff in it that is completely icky and altogether really icky. So that's uh, as long as we're clear. (laughs) Yeah. Bit better. (laughs) So they... (laughs) So then this happens. And again, so they they made a big splash. All the the regular people who would defend this shit come out of the woodworks to defend them and say, well, great job. You've shown that gender studies is bad. And they like to refer to it as grievance studies because, of course, it's just all these people with all these grievances who are just, like, uh, mad at the world that is uh, straight and white and male. And they they don't like straight white males. And so we got to be do these hoaxes to show them that they're wrong because we can mock them in some way. I don't know. They also it should go on. uh, We should go on to mention that, like, part of the thing that failed here was uh, one of their studies. They, like, made up data. And so it got published because they made up a set of data, which is like fraud. <laughs> and uh, they got into uh. some trouble. Uh, Peter Bogosian uh, ended up, uh, I guess, uh, being uh, sanctioned by his ethics board yeah. at his university. So th- there was some uh, benefit to come out of this, I guess. Peter has since resigned as well from his university, which is and then joined the, that University of Austin, Texas thing that started a while ago. So... Uh, you know, these people are, are tons of fun. <laughs> so what, where James Lindsay is now is he, after putting all those things together, so you can see his trajectory here, he then started teaming up with a, a an organization called Sovereign Nations, which is run by this guy named Michael O'Fallon. And they are a, a Christian nationalist, dare I say Christian fascist organization that is against critical race theory and thinks that the Southern Baptist Church has been like uh, infiltrated by critical race theories, and they need to to purge that from their their pulpits is basically how that works. And in order to help them to do that, they get on board uh, James Lindsay to help them out. Uh, <laughs> Atheist James Lindsay to come help them with their Southern Baptist uh, convention, which is it's it's just amazing. <laughs> Yeah, it's really just like wild. What has happened to like Christianity in North America, and then also like, then what happens to almost everything else? You know, like you get these Christian denominations that started off as like critiques of, you know, Catholicism or Lutheranism or whatever, as like not going far enough to like live the like you know messages of justice or whatever else in the bible and then you have atheists who are like oh wow these christian denominations are like you know have become so oppressive and everything like that and then they just like meld into one thing together that is like increasingly fascist and it's like huh where where did you get lost on the way there well this is why like i've always 
I've started to live by this like notion that like religion's not the problem. You know, it's like fascism and racism and shit is the problem. Like so long as you're willing to fight for the good causes against oppression and for freedom and for uh, communism, I don't care what deity that you, you have in the background, you know, like that's kind of like irrelevant to me as an atheist. And and it became it started to become apparent to me throughout this development and watching people like James Lindsay in the community that I quasi belong to, to just be like, oh, you people are just as terrible as some of the religious people that you propose to hate. And then in the case of James Lindsay, he ended up fucking joining them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it, it's, yeah, it, it's like, no, it's just like. <sighs> I don't know, just like watching the critics of something become the something that they critiqued. Like, yeah, it's it's annoying, but it also it's like it, you could see it coming. I mean, it's the same thing with Sam Harris is another figure in that sort of like milieu that like all you had to do was read his writings on like Palestine and shit like this. Like you knew where he was going, you know? Yeah. And his defense of torture and shit. Right. But it's like it's just. It's unnecessary. We don't. It doesn't have to be this way, you know? Why not just, like, fight for the good things, you know? <laughs> Instead, we make it like, it's the religion that's bad, and then you're throwing away otherwise good people who could fight for good causes. So, th this is James Lindsay. I figured we would do the, back, the background and how I knew him. And, like, again, I've known him for a very long time, which is why it is very weird. I would have never expected that one day he would show up on the fucking Rebel News and we would have to cover him on our goddamn podcast. <laughs> Never thought that this was coming. But here we are. And uh, we will get into it. I, I will say right up front, it, it's a bit weird. I will, I will try to, to play clips, and some of these clips are going to be a bit long. But we'll, we'll go through it because you'll find the weirdest shit that gets said is going to be said by Ezra here. James Lindsay is largely incoherent. He's more of a side character here, but I wanted to cover him. But he he does feel like a side character in this interview. I I almost I don't know how else to set it up. It is going to go in some weird direction. So we'll we'll just I guess we'll start. So they begin their interview with uh, Ezra calling James Lindsay an edgy, tough philosopher. Just want to say, as someone with a degree in philosophy, I find that very offensive. They jump from that to immediately talking about January 6th, which I should say, I, I did not see that coming. So we're just, what we're talking about, January 6th. Sure. Of course, this has to do with the fact that the left wants to go after conservatives. You may be thinking, what happened on January 6th? It uh, was when a crowd of Donald Trump supporters went to Washington to stop what they called the steal. The, what they felt was the stolen election by Joe Biden. And a number of rowdies in the more than 100,000 who were there that day broke into the Capitol building. And a friend of mine calls it the great meandering because they didn't torch the place. They didn't sack it. They sort of wandered around. Um, they sat in Nancy Pelosi's chair, apparently put their legs up. One of them lifted up a podium. But I don't think it quite rises to the level of a riot I think it was an important day to the left because they wanted to transform all of their critics into violent terrorists, domestic terrorists, that they could then deploy all the powers of the state against. 
the FBI, even the Army counterintelligence. They wanted to treat conservative Trump supporters the same way that Al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups have been treated under the Patriot Act and use some of the same tools against them. However, things started to fall apart. It's been over a year and not a single protester, meanderer, or if you want to use the word rioter, has been charged with insurrection or anything like that, even though that charge is available to them. We will get to some of the content there in a second. I just, on the last point, it is worth noting that this episode of his was recorded and released on January 12th. On January 13th, so literally the next day, the Department of Justice charged Stuart Rhodes and 10 other Oath Keepers with seditious conspiracy. So that's not exactly insurrection, but Ezra did say related charges. And yeah. I would argue that seditious conspiracy is pretty related. I mean, yes. <laughs> and then also, like, what he was saying about, like, oh, wow. They just want to be able to frame these people as like some sort of internal fifth column that is trying to overthrow the government in favor of uh, their religious beliefs or blah, blah, blah. And it's like he's literally talking about what happened to Muslims in America post 9-11. And like he's literally talking about the way that like black freedom protest, like freedom movement people are treated like. Like he's literally talking about the actual like historical and current treatment of people and then being like, oh, wow, it wouldn't be crazy if they were going to do this. But that's because he perceives he perceives those causes as just, right? Like yeah. the Muslims are bad. The Black Lives Matter people are bad. But these were just hapless meanderers who just wandered through the halls of Congress. They were just, they stumbled through the Capitol. They really didn't know what they were doing. Yeah, they were <laughs> meanderers and protesters. And like to use the word riot for people breaking into the Capitol building with four, like, you know, with bats and like beating down police lines and like looting and whatever else and it's like oh no calling them writers is mean i want to bring this up only because like and not to be like too conspiratorial but the only person that ezra sent down to january 6th was kian bexty who no longer works for them even though they say they parted on good terms okay i wonder if there is some communication between Kia and Bexty and people affiliated with the Oath Keepers. And the reason why I wonder that is Stuart Rhodes was a common guest and friend of Alex Jones and repeatedly appeared on the InfoWars program and was the leader of the Oath Keepers and is one of the people who's been charged with seditious conspiracy here. And for those who don't know, like it's, it wasn't... It wasn't just seditious conspiracy. They they basically stockpiled a bunch of weapons in a Virginia hotel. And so, like, the other talking point that you get from Ezra and all them is that, like, no one was arrested with guns or whatever. That's because they they planted them in a building and were going to get them if called upon by, the by Trump to go get them and do it. So they were waiting to bring the fucking weapons. Like, yeah. <laughs> like this... You just got to think about it. like this, this was pretty fucking freaky in, in a large way that like certain ducks, if certain ducks landed in a different way, January 6th could have turned out wildly different. You know, there is a like 
annoying tendency I find on the left to kind of like dismiss it as well in a like, oh, haha, like these were just like dumb idiots that didn't know what they were doing. They didn't have it planned out. And it's like, what do you think the beer hall putsch was? It was a bunch of dumb idiots. In Germany. (laughs) It was a bunch of dumb idiots that everybody made fun of for a couple years later. And then like, next thing you know, they're in power. Like, amazingly, trial runs often fail. And like, and, and when you read the text messages of Stuart Rhodes and the other Oath Keepers, like they are a bunch of dumb idiots like that. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm not going to question that. It's just like they were dumb idiots that tried to put forward a plan that didn't go exactly how they wanted. But like, I don't know, when you're stockpiling weapons in a fucking hotel, <laughs> waiting for the president's word to fucking, you know, bring them. You know, a little concerning. You know, it's it, it's due a little reflection of how we should deal with that, you know? Uh, and so my the end of my conspiracy is just like, I wonder if uh, if there are some connections uh, with Kian. I don't know where he stayed. Did Kian stay in the same hotel with the other? Because uh, Roger Stone uh, had uh, Oath Keepers as security detail on January 6th. Like, there's t- and Roger Stone has also been on Rebel News. They're all, like, friends and connected. So it's like... Is Kian roped into any of this? I don't know. Can't say. Maybe he was. I don't know. I think Kian's too lame for it, I gotta say. <laughs> I mean... And that's that's yeah. the only thing that like, discounts that to me. I'm just saying. Uh, a lot of... I mean, Alex Jones might get roped into this, too. It's gonna be... The next the next few months of this investigation is gonna be kind of, kind of interesting. We'll see how it goes. But anyways, you can see it's so weird. It, we've already drifted off in the sense of, like... This is an interview with James Lindsay. Uh, why are we talking about January 6th? And again, Ezra's going to do a lot of monologuing here. So we, we move from this to talk about uh, some guy named Ray Epps. And Ray Epps has become this uh, figure that the right wing is trying to claim is a, an FBI official. Really, all they have is this guy. They have video of the guy who I will say Ray Epps was also an Oath Keeper. I don't think he was involved in any of the text exchanges that occurred, so therefore is not one of the people who's been arrested for seditious conspiracy. But there was a video of him saying, like, let's go take the Capitol. And so a lot of the right wing was like, we have video evidence that he said, let's go take the Capitol. And yet he's not on a list for like arrest or investigation. Like why? So they're like, he must be a Fed. Now, he did get investigated. And I guess the conclusion was they didn't find anything like so there's no evidence that Ray Epps actually entered the Capitol. So and there's no evidence that he, say, hit a police officer with a flagpole or anything like that. So it's like they have nothing to get him on. Them's the bricks. That's the legal system. You know? <laughs> it's like, uh, like I so, but like this gives them enough to like hang their own to try to create this conspiracy theory to go look it was an FBI agent and like so it's all orchestrated by FBI agents and nothing none of it's real, uh, which is just fucking silly. And on top of that, so they play Ezra plays this clip again interviewing James Lindsay, plays this clip with Ted Cruz berating a, uh, a FBI official on the stand being like, was Ray Epps an FBI agent? And then they're like, we can't say. Now, they frame this as of like, well, 
I, well, I guess like Ezra says, if this was a Rebel News employee, I would just say no. So why wouldn't this person say no? And the very obvious reason is like if you're if you do have intelligence officers, you can't just be uh, like uh, saying whether or not people are intelligence officers, because then people would get suspicious when you don't want to answer that question. So you just say you can't say to every question, right? Yeah. Because as soon as you say, yes, that person is, or you say, no, that person isn't. So say say they say that Ray Epps is not. Then they ask for the other person, and you say, well, I'm not going to answer for that person. Everyone is automatically going to be like, that person is an, an intelligence officer, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they get to use this theater to be like, they're all... They're all intelligence officers. It's, it was an inside job. Every single American is an intelligence officer. Yes. So James Lindsay then responds to all the stuff that Ezra is playing. And he's like, yes, this is very suspicious. And uh, James Lindsay himself then compares January 6th to the Reichstag fire. So again, this is it's the what, what happened on January 6th was such an op that like it's like the fact that Nazis secretly burned down the Reichstag to blame it on other people so that they can take control uh, of power. And we've covered that before on this show, but it is interesting yeah. that that's where Lindsay goes to as well. So Lindsay and Ezra then talk about how we're being made to feel certain ways about January 6th by the media and by the deep state. So that is uh, the next clip I'm going to play. If it really was like 9-11 or Pearl Harbor, you wouldn't need to tell us. I mean, that patch, remember Pearl Harbor, you wear that 50 years later because maybe you, you weren't there to live it. Every one of us lived through January 6th, uh, 2021. And the fact that I think 99% of Americans would say, what? What are you talking about? What happened then? Shows that it isn't a thing other than maybe it was a sort of entrapment a sort of, a, I mean, really the continuation of the five-year war against Donald Trump of what is known as the deep state. I mean, the deep state is, I think, defined as the permanent governing class, bureaucrats, civil servants who watch politicians come and go. Um, it's the FBI. I, I would imagine that trust in the FBI has got to be at an all-time low since the time of J. Edgar Hoover. I want to pause right there before we play the rest of the clip and we get to hear what Lindsay has to say. To just stop on the moment of Ezra saying that nobody knows what happened on January 6th, I'm sure if you ask anyone in America about January 6th, almost everyone would know. Like, I... <laughs> right? Everybody, oh yeah, it's when those dinguses fucking 200K stormed the... 200K in the chat, let's go! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's, it's just amazing that, like, you know, it was live streamed to, like, everyone. <laughs> Which is what Vienna yeah. was getting at with the two educated. Like it's, I like I like I sat there and watched it all day. Like happening. Like there's everyone is talking about it. Like even people who are not politically activated know about January sixth. So it's just amazing to me that he's playing this game of like, you know, severely ordinary people who are just like out there in the woods, just like you know, just don't even know what happened on January sixth. They're completely oblivious to it. That having been said, though, the comparison to 9-11 and Pearl Harbor is just, like, dumb as fuck. Like, yes. they are not the same. It's like the Boston Marathon bombing type of thing. You wouldn't compare that to 9-11. You wouldn't compare that to Pearl Harbor. But it's still something that people know about. Like, it was still a bad thing that happened. 
No, I, I do agree with that. That's like the one thing about this framing that is correct, which is that there is a certain liberal class out there that is playing up the kind of like s sacredness of the democracy angle and how this was like so, like a spiritual attack on the country or some like nonsense, you know? This was an attack on Alexander Hamilton yeah. himself. <laughs> As played and portrayed and sung and written by Lin-Manuel Miranda. And I made a tweet on January 6th of responding to what Vienna was referencing here, which is the fact that fucking Nancy Pelosi played a Hamilton song to commemorate January 6th, okay? I tweeted out on the day, and I was like, despite what liberals are doing right now, making it very cringe, what happened on January 6th was still not good, Okay. <laughs> Yeah. We have to we have to keep these two things separate. Yes, the liberals are cringe, but yes, January sixth was still a bad thing, and we should still care about it uh, a, at least a little bit, you know. Uh, but they, of course, are gonna like sort of like slip over all that nuance uh, by yes, hitting on the same thing that we're acknowledging here, which is the liberals are very cringe. It is from what polls I've seen, and I saw that about the focus groups as well. It's not resonating with Americans, and frankly, the reason is because Americans aren't as stupid as uh, some of these elite leaders want us to believe that we are. Uh, if we wanted to get all philosophical about it, we could invoke Jean Baudrillard, the French postmodernist who talked about the creation of hyper-reality, which was a false reality that was attempted to be depicted in the film The Matrix. And uh, kind of the point there is that when you learn to see that that's what's happening, that they're creating something fake, it doesn't resonate with you. It wasn't a momentous event for most Americans. It wasn't a significant uh, event in any regard. It was a huge act of political theater. Again, to invoke Joan Baudrillard, he famously wrote a book titled The Gulf War Did Not Take Place. Well, January 6th did not take place. He said that the Gulf War was an atrocity masquerading as a war. And what we have here is a farce uh, masquerading as the worst day in American history. Why the fuck is he quoting a French Marxist on this? What did Baudrillard do to be quoted by James Lindsay? I feel so bad for that dude. This is, I'm already a little weirded out by this, because one thing that you would know about James Lindsay is that he hates these people. His whole thing yeah. is that, like, these postmodern critical theorists, they're all bad, uh, they're trying to corrupt us, uh, all that fun stuff. And yet here he is using a theory of theirs to describe what's happening on January 6th. Now, I would argue he's... <sighs> Is he using the theory right? Uh, maybe a little bit, but then he's like applying it in a way that like y he has the facts wrong. So like the theory wouldn't apply. <laughs> I think like there's an element to it that, yes, there is some sort of like uh, creation or like especially when you talk about the liberal cringe of the liberals trying to like conjure up a, a sort of like cultural understanding of the event that I don't think is true or real. But He's taking it to an extent to say, like, not just the liberal cringe thing is, like, culturally manufactured, but the entire thing is culturally manufactured into something that it isn't because of the FBI agents and all that shit, right? I mean, it's more like, you know, if you were to call, like, if you were to refer to it as a spectacular event in, like, you know, the sense of, like, Guy Debord and, like, the Society of the Spectacle, where it's, like, you know, yeah, it's a thing that reinforces the current order of things and, like reinforces like capitalism's ability to make profits 
by, you know, kind of just, like, inuring us to these sorts of atrocities. Sure, there's an argument to be made there. I wouldn't go for Baudrillard for it. <laughs> I would go to Debord. But also, like, then you have to still be arguing that, like, capitalism and the system is such are bad. And it's like, I don't know, like, I just... I do not fucking get James Lindsay. This dude is so insane in, like... (laughs) He reads people that he hates, and he doesn't understand them, and then he tries to take ideas from them and say that they were right still, (laughs) while also being like, they're wrong about everything, they're stupid, they're fucked, they're destroying our society, and they are the ones that are in control now. But also... Baudrillard was right about January 6th. Yeah. <laughs> like. <laughs> or at least his theory was. Like, I don't. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And what no. theory? Like, he's not actually talking about anything. He named the title of a book. Well, yeah. Well, like, the Gulf War wasn't real. And J- January 6th, also not real. See? Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> you have been got. <laughs> Arkansas does not exist. I, I will say, Ezra doesn't, like, whenever James brings up these, like, uh, you know, critical theories uh, and, like, these thinkers, Ezra never, like, responds directly to them. <laughs> he, just, he just lets, you know, lets James uh, take those and runs with them. And uh... anyways, I will play another clip. This one is a bit long. And we'll stop it uh, halfway through if we need to, but the gist of this is, again, it's really just going to elicit how long-winded James Lindsay is, so we'll just... This is why it was so hard to, like, find particular things of his to, like, focus on, because he says a lot of nonsense in a very long-winded way, so here we go. You ask, for example, um, why why you have so many public health officials and they all play a game of Simon Says. You can ask why the Soviet Union had so many commissars and they all said the same thing. Um, and I don't draw that that comparison flippantly uh, or glibly. And another thing is, you know, just like we talked about how January 6th and the Bo- John Baudrillardian sense did not take place. The COVID-19 pandemic did not take place. It was a power grab masquerading as a uh, pandemic, as I think, not to say that the virus isn't real, not to say that millions of people didn't get sick, not to say that many people didn't die as a result of getting sick, uh, though we don't know how many now that the information is coming out that those those uh, statistics were clearly inflated. Uh, but what we... I will pause there just to say that I, I don't know that we have evidence that they've been inflated. Uh, there's been some back and forth about this, but I'm pretty sure the consensus that they've been underreported. But we'll have to wait, I think, years before we have all that sorted out. I mean, globally, yes, they're, they've been undercounted because for the most part, there are huge regions of the globe that do not produce data on causes of death, period. So... Yeah, it's been undercounted. But you do love, like, so he moved from applying uh, the theory to January 6th to now it also applies to the pandemic generally. Uh, this... <laughs> the Bodia... It also applies to Soviet commissars. Yes, the public health officials are somehow Soviet commissars. So this whole clip is him explaining that that comment. 
I, by the end of it, I, I want to will come back and assess whether you have any other comprehensive understanding of how the public health officials are in fact like Soviet commissars. So here we go. Have is a it, it is exactly what you said. The greatest infringement upon civil liberties, upon free people in free countries, uh, United States and Canada, both among them, uh, since slavery. Uh, and you have to wonder, because this didn't just happen in the United States and Canada. Australia is in worse shape than Canada. This has happened across Europe, which is mostly in worse shape, at least in the United States and in some places, even then Canada. Uh, the sole exceptions being Sweden and Switzerland, to the, to the degree of knowledge that I have. Uh, it's certainly happening within the UK. And so something that, you know, ominously might be named Operation Lockstep got let loose uh, in the name of this pandemic. And we see people like Fauci um, not being able to answer very important, very clear questions. For example, why he's declaring himself to be the science, which to invoke another French postmodernist, Michel Foucault warned us about under the name of biopower is you should not allow technocrats to take power and claim the mantle of science as though it's just absolute truth and the justification for their seat of power. And, uh, so, <laughs> oh my God. so we get another French thinker that he also used in a way to support his argument. Very weird. Uh, wanted to flag that. I fucking hate this. I hate <laughs> listening to this dude speak so much. It is just like so frustrating and infuriating. And I've been muting myself through these clips because I'm basically just like screaming and punching my fist. Like, what the fuck? Are you any closer to understanding how the public health officials are like Soviet commissars? <laughs> we have him not being able to answer simple questions about his involvement in certain activities, such as we saw in the clip where he's smearing uh, the scientists that gave the Great Barrington Declaration, who uh, doubted that the approach that Operation Lockstep or whatever it happened to be was reflecting in, in, in the, the pandemic in not just the United States, not just Canada, but in every major Western nation simultaneously. And it raises serious questions that are not being answered. Um, and again, you know, why? Why do we have so many of these these uh, public health officials who are saying exactly the same thing. And I bring the question back to the table. Why did the Soviet Union have so many commissars who said exactly the same thing? There you have it. <laughs> Don't you understand, Vienna? Don't you get it? Public health policy and reinforcing the state ideology of Marxism-Leninism are the exact same. I... Taking public measures to ensure that people are healthy and don't die of a preventable disease. Nailed it. Soviet communism. Yep. I, like, I will say, the thing that, like, interested me the most to want to play this clip is not only... So it does really, I think elicit the fact that he's largely incoherent uh, i think a lot of that just didn't make any sense whatsoever but it's also the fact that he just laid out a whole bunch of like uh conspiracy factoids so like we've gone over a lot of this on like the podcast so a lot of the like things that dr fauci has says or has said for example like that he is all the science 
he didn't really say that uh the stuff about the great barrington declaration or about like cases in sweden and how sweden is dealing with the pandemic like all these things are things that have been debunked so i don't feel like we need to like go over all of them it's just the fact that like or Operation Lockstep was another one that he went over here. But like, it's like you have all these pieces of the conspiracy theory that he's just laying out there and then sprinkling in some like, here's uh, what Michel Foucault had to say. And then like, and then that's his point. And it's like, none of it makes any fucking sense. Yeah. And like, again, with the like application of Foucault there, it was literally just like naming one of his concepts in a vaguely defined way. It wasn't actually, like, referencing anything. It was just being like, ah, Foucault talked about biopower. And he talked about the dangers of bureaucrats deciding what is and is not science or whatever bullshit. That's nothing. That's less detail than a Wikipedia entry. Yeah, like, it, it's su- it's very surface level. It is, it's like he read the Wikipedia. Uh, he, he barely remembers the Wikipedia. It's like what it feels like, right? But it is still weird that he's trying to use it in a defensive tactic rather than being like, Michel Foucault is the enemy. Instead, he's like, here's how I can apply his theory to a phenomenon I've witnessed. It's... <laughs> You know, when you look up something and, like, the Wikipedia entry comes up and you get, like, those three little sentences that, like, give you the the barest summary? It's like he read that and then was just like, I know Foucault now. Yeah. I know Baudrillard now. <laughs> like, dude, fuck off. So the only time he said something negative about... uh any any sort of like old school philosopher that would loosely be categorized as postmodern is he said something negative about Marcuse, but I didn't include it because it was off on some tangent that just didn't make sense. Uh, and that was the only time he said something negative. Every other time he brought up a like postmodern thinker has always been to like bolster his positions, which is very fucking weird to me. Given that he thinks these people are like destroying society i don't know it's interesting because like it's he's a like postmodernist example of the like uh after world war ii and japan's like basically wholesale economic destruction uh by the united states and like the end of the imperial like war economy in general um japanese economists use karl marx's capital as their influence for rebuilding the Japanese economy for capitalism. <laughs> like they used Marx to do capitalism better. And James Lindsay is now doing this with Foucault and Baudrillard and like fucking Hegel and like whoever else he like interacts with because he's just like taking them and being like, huh, they did describe society correctly. It's just that I like it. I like what they did. I like this description. I want more of this. I do like it's gonna come back near the end. Uh, there's a clip, so we'll get to it. He he does bring the bring it around or talk about it in a way. I I think it's still incoherent, but we will sort of like touch on why he's using them sort of like defensively. Uh, mm. I think it kind of comes up in a, his roundabout James Lindsay in way, but uh, we'll we'll put a pause in that for now. Then the next clip I want to play is interesting only because. Here we're going to get a back and forth between Ezra and uh, James, and it's it's digging even further into this conspiratorial like rabbit hole. So again, it's it actually like quite surprised me 
that this interview was going to boil down to them just like it's just two bros hanging out talking about like klaus schwab and the great reset is not what i was anticipating <laughs> getting into this interview but here we are just two bros just like hashing it out like oh build back better great reset i agree with you that the it, the the facts on the table raise significant questions. What is the World Economic Forum? What is the intention of the Great Reset? Who is involved? Uh, who knew what and when, to kind of paraphrase the infamous Watergate trials? Um, because somebody knew something. Did your banker, did, 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 the, did the officials of Goldman Sachs who show up to these Davos things, did they know when they signed you a 30-year mortgage that they were going to engage in a Great Reset that looked like it looks like it's going to crash uh, you know, currencies and cause rampant inflation as part of the program. Did they know this? Uh, did they know that, you know, Klaus Schwab put out a video with the World Economic Forum in 2016 that says by 2030, you will own nothing and you will be happy, but they were selling you a house. Uh, who knew what and when? Why did so many CEOs suddenly resign in 2019? Why is there another wave of CEOs that have been resigning over the past few months in so many large major corporations? There are sufficient facts on the table now to start asking extraordinarily hard questions. And one of them ties back exactly like you said to what Neil Oliver said, the phrasing, build back better, coming out of so many mouths all at once, just like the policy for the response to the, um, uh, the hyper real pandemic was was all in lockstep and the same from all corners. We don't just have that. They're talking about a great reset. They're talking about a narrow window of opportunity in which to uh, do this great reset, which that language comes straight out of Klaus Schwab's book, COVID-19, The Great Reset, which he published very rapidly uh, last year after the pandemic, or the year before last, after the pandemic started. I think it was out by summer of 2020. And so we should be asking these questions. Who's involved? What did they know? We just got to ask all the right questions, Vieto. There's just so, so many questions. Why, why the letter B? Why the fascination with the letter B? Why, how would you, how did he even learn how to write a book? I just, I got so many questions. They're like, oh, whoa, he wrote a book by multiple months into the pandemic <laughs> happening when he was probably stuck at home with nothing better to do and is presumably an academic, so he writes for a living. I also want to know, what is the Great Reset? Because my understanding of what the Great Reset is I don't even think we're anywhere close to implementing it. Yet James Lindsay thinks it's already the cause of inflation. No, COVID was the great reset. It was just like <laughs> first infection, boom, they smacked the economy button and made it go down I, or up. It is just like, it, like all this is, is just like two bros asking really stupid questions to each other about like, ooh, yeah. isn't this weird? And I'm like, this is like old school conspiracy thinking. Like there's nothing, there's no substance here. Like you could sit around and just like, you know, they call it jacking off, just asking questions. You could jack off to yourself like all day long if you want to. It's like, does it, does it help anything? Have we learned anything by hearing James Lindsay pontificate about all these fucking questions? No. It's funny because, like, he speaks with, like, such, like, academic, like, oh, yes, I know what I'm talking about, and I speak rather confidently and with big words on occasion. But then he doesn't understand how the fuck, like, writing a book works. 
Like, Andreas <laughs> Malm had a book out on the pandemic by fucking April 2020. So did uh, Ezra. Ezra had a book almost right away called The China yeah, Virus. Like, yeah. These people are fucking insane. And by, by these people, I don't mean James Lindsay in this case, even. Like, I mean fucking academics. Like, their brains are broken. All they know how to do is type on a keyboard. So, like, you stick them at home. Yeah, they're going to make a book. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's just... No, I mean, like, well, I, yeah, and, it, you know, on the flip side of this, it won't take uh, someone like Ezra to pump out a book either. I mean, yeah. he just had to be like, I don't like China. China virus, done, book, send it out there, you know? Yeah, like, I don't know, like, it, it's not really that hard to just, like, smash buttons on a keyboard and have a book come out. So, the next bit is Ezra responding to James Lindsay's talking here in a direction that I absolutely did not anticipate but I love deeply. And it's going to take us in some interesting turns and it's going to take a bit. So this is a bit of a long clip. I, I will pause it after sections. But I want... How do I put this? I want to ref check in with you each time I pause it just to see, like... To frame this, he's going to talk about George Soros. Okay? We'll get into it. But I'm curious how you feel he's characterizing the story. Because I feel that when I listen to this... I'm prone to perceive things a certain way, given what I already know about Ezra. And you might be too, but I also want to, to try to like, see if I'm reading too much into what Ezra says at certain points. But I will, I will okay. start to play it, and uh, this is going to be fun. Strap it. <laughs> I regard it as an unusual uh, moment in my own life when uh, George Soros sued me personally for writing about him in the Toronto Sun. I had just joined the Toronto Sun, and uh, this was months before the launch of the Sun News Network. And, and the, the newspaper made the decision to retract and apologize. I don't think they wanted to fight George Soros. I resisted that, but he literally was just hired by Sun News, and I, I was in no position to resist it. Um, I've been interested in him ever since. Um, I mean, I, I simply wrote what he told his own biographer, that that he, I mean, when he was a teenage boy, for those of you who don't know, uh, he was in Hungary and he was a Jew, even though his, him and his father really were, um, uh, they abandoned their Jewishness. They, they, you know, they spoke Esperanto at home. He was a very early, I guess you could say globalist or transnationalist. And his father said, we're going to get through this thing. Um, you're a teenage boy, uh, do what you need to, to survive. And for a while, he would ride his bike around Budapest and hand the death notices to the Jews to show up to the train stations. And then later, his dad placed him with like a Nazi overseer who was confiscating Jewish property. Like, uh, I mean, I, you can't really blame a teenage boy for doing what his father says and for doing anything to survive the war. But it we'll go through sort of like each each little piece there. But uh, first thing I want to ask you. Do you, how do you feel about his characterization here? I have a feeling that's bullshit. Like, so I, I'll start with saying like what what happened in terms of Ezra being sued. So I could not find the original article. I believe it was published in 2010, and so it was an article written for the Sun. Mm -hmm. And I found a, a blog at the time which directly quoted the offending sentence. So I believe this is what George Soros was responding to. Ezra wrote, 
By collaborating with the Nazis, George survived the Holocaust. He turned on other Jews to spare himself. Now, what we just heard, what, like, to me, the essence of that still sort of remains here. The only difference that I gather is this kind of like, yeah, but he was a teenager, so we can't really blame him. But he still sort of went through with it. Yeah. Like, and then also just like the sneaking in of like, oh, he was an early globalist type of stuff too. And it's just, I don't know. All of that seemed weird. And I don't know. So now we'll go like piece by piece here. Okay. It is true that Soros's immediate family were non-observant Jews. And that they changed their name to Soros, which is a Christian name. And they did this during the rise of anti-Semitism in Hungary, because being observant or not really didn't matter to Nazis or anti-Semites, right? Because they perceived Jewishness as being a essential component. So, yeah. But it is also true that the family spoke uh, what Ezra referred to as Esperanto. Have you ever heard of Esperanto before? Yeah. So I had not. And I thought, oh, okay. like, oh, that's that's kind of interesting. And like, so I spent a bit of time like looking into Esperanto. But uh, I mean, you can you can give your brief little description to see like what you already know about it. Yeah, I, it was an attempt by I think like socialists and such. Uh, I don't remember which grouping they were like adjacent to, but it was a like attempt to create a sort of global language under the belief that like socialism or communism would require a language that everybody would understand and so it borrowed pieces from a bunch of different primarily european languages uh in order to like create its own grammar structure its own like words and everything like that um yeah i it is interesting that like if he did speak esperanto at home like one of the only people that i know of <laughs> who did um, so I'm, yeah. I'm not entirely sure of its connections with socialism from, from what I gather. So it was created initially by, uh, a person named L.L. Zamenhof, who was a Polish Jew who lived in Warsaw. And this was before, uh, the Nazis. This was in the, the 1800s and Zamenhof's idea of it, uh, was due to the fact that in Warsaw, uh, there was like street gangs that would always fight and the way Zamenhof perceived it, they were always of like different ethnic backgrounds and spoke a different language. So there was mm -hmm. Russians, there was uh, Jews who spoke Yiddish, uh, Poles, etc. And they were all speaking different languages. And his idea was like, if they could all just find some way to communicate with each other, all this fighting would stop and we could like create world peace. Right. So the idea was like, and, and you know what, it, it's such a, like a, just an, a nice idea. Like, the way yeah. that it's... In, in reading some of, like, Zemenhof's, like, writings, too, uh, it's he's just like, you know, wouldn't it just be nice if we could all just communicate with each other and get along? Like... <laughs> but and you, and you can sort of see here, too, as well, that, like, it does stem, I think, a lot from the anti-Semitism that even Zemenhof was, like, experiencing as a Jew in Poland. And so it's, like, this way of, like... The Jews would be treated a lot better if, like, we could all just communicate with each other. Uh, and so I know it was adopted by socialists uh, until I think Stalin eventually started to, like, squash that in the Soviet Union. But prior to mm -hmm. Stalin, it was widely accepted. 
And I think today there's only like a hundred to two hundred thousand people that actually speak this language, including maybe George that's, Soros still. But yeah, that's a lot of people. I'm surprised. It is. It is the largest uh, constructed language, or like it's the own. It's the constructed language that has the most people that currently speak it, which is kind of interesting. You can also see though that it has a kind of like. I think Ezra might be kind of right in using the language of transnationalism in the sense that like the creation of this language would be to like bring everyone together despite their like nationalistic tendencies. Like if we could all just communicate with each other, right? I mean, I don't like... The thing is like Ezra is using it in the like globalist sense. Leftists have a word for that too and it's called internationalist. And like, I don't know, like, I guess that is more my objection. It's my objection too. Uh, So that's interesting that you framed that, because this is like partly why, like, I initially heard it, I looked into it. And this is one of the first things I found, was even in Mein Kampf, Hitler wrote about Esperanto as being a creation of Jews in their plot for like world domination. And so, like, there's an element here in which it just feels so icky. The way Ezra sort of, like, like for one, why even bring up Esperanto here? Why is that the yeah. one fact about George Soros that you're just going to go pluck and, like, bring that up? Specifically in the context of saying he spoke it because he was a globalist or transnationalist, when that is precisely what, like, Hitler wrote about in Mein Kampf in referring to why this language was created. That's so fucked up. That is that is so fucked up. Okay, thank you for oh my God. <laughs> like, like I I like I don't want to read too much into what he said, but I'm like, how else do you read into that? Yeah. Yeah. No, like there isn't any other like thing. It's just extremely fucked and that's it. Which is like it, it tells me that like he even if he he himself is not thinking it in terms of like anti-Semitism, it's clear to me that Ezra hangs out with way too many people that probably have expressed similar thoughts in his like presence. Uh, if yeah. we were to give him any charitability, which I'm inclined not to, but uh, I thought like very interesting. I, I will say so. Yes, uh, George Soros, his dad was a lawyer, uh, so therefore they they had a little bit of a, a higher standing. And so they were learned individuals. And uh, he also uh, wrote a journal that was one of the first Esperanto journals. Uh, So, and here's the thing. It's like, it's funny because Ezra wants to frame this as like that being, even if you're like speaking your language as being internationalists, when it was like, at this time, no one was really speaking it. So really like he had an interest in a language that he was trying to promote, but no one else was speaking it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or I wouldn't say no one was speaking it, but like a very few number of people were speaking it. So it's like even weird to like frame the Soroses as being like globalists because they liked uh, this language just seems very icky to me. Like it's it's again, all of this just to like subtly gesture towards an argument that Hitler made in Mein Kampf, which is like kind of fucked up. Yeah. We get into the other things, okay? So Ezra then frames Soros' father as telling his son to do whatever he needs to survive. I, I can't verify that being the case, but it also sounds like uh, Ezra's trying to vilify the father by being like, do whatever you can to survive, you know? Uh, 
it just it's another way of like trying to frame their survival in Holocaust Germany as like a negative when like I don't know I probably want to be like yeah do whatever you need to to survive like you're being rounded up like I, I don't know yeah and it's I don't know it's one of those like like it's one of the fundamental like problems with Holocaust studies is like you know how to frame survivors and like you know and I don't think it's like quite right to call them collaborators all like in Soros's case necessarily but like you know the people who did shitty things in order to survive as well that is like a nuanced and interesting discussion to have but in this case it's a bit weird because yeah here's how here's how it gets even weirder so ezra then claims that soros was sent around by bicycle to hand death notes to jews at train stations i'm not sure what he means by death notices but okay so this is a story uh that soros himself uh reflects on in his own biography which was that when he was 13 years old he was barred from going to school during the nazi occupation of hungary the children were instead tasked by the nazis to attend these things called jewish councils and they were set up by the nazis to basically facilitate aspects of the holocaust so at, at one point soros was tasked by the council to deliver these notices to jews to then report to the nazis and what Soros ended up doing was going home to his father's his father first, which is kind of interesting. So as Soros took the notes home to his father, his father said, these are not uh, report like notices for the uh, Jews to report, but they're deportation notices and that anyone that you hand this to will be deported. And so Soros didn't end up delivering the letters and in so doing possibly saved lives. Yeah, so, <laughs> so the, like, so Ezra's just straight up lying. Because there's no, here's the thing is, Soros could be making this up in his own biography, but, like, yeah. I have no reason to doubt it. He was 13 years old. Like, why the fuck would he lie about this? But then it's like, so that being our only source, Ezra's just making shit up. Like, Ezra doesn't yeah. have another source. Holy fuck. Okay, gets worse. So then Ezra... <laughs> Ezra then claims that his dad placed him with a Nazi overseer who was confiscating uh, Jewish property, okay? Yeah. So at this point in the war, Soros was 14, and his family had documentation showing they were Christian. So as a lawyer, uh, Soros' father was able to, like, work some shit out. They they were, like, disguised as Christians, okay? Now, at one point, for whatever reason, Soros' father uh, sent uh, George to go live with this person uh, and was posing as this guy's Christian godson. And the dude was a government official. Uh, In fact, he was the uh, minister of agriculture in the collaborationist uh, government. Okay. So the government at the time was collaborating with the Nazis. However, this person who Ezra describes as a Nazi overseer, overseer, in fact, was hiding his own Jewish wife. So it's not like, so there's nuance here that exists at every level. So this guy was a part of the collaborationist government, but was also working to hide his own wife. Uh, (laughs) It's complicated. It's messy, right? Okay. Yeah. So at one point, the government official took Soros with him uh, just because he didn't want to leave Soros alone and was tasked to make an inventory of confiscated items at a Jewish estate. So Mm -hmm. 
they were not confiscating the items. They were simply like, you know, making an inventory of them as the Nazis were confiscating these items. And that's what like Ezra is using as evidence that George Soros was a collaborator even at 14 or 15, even though he backs up, he's like, we can't, he was he collaborating, he was a teenager, but he was definitely like quasi working with them to confiscate Jewish uh, items. God. <laughs> okay. Holy fuck. We then, this, this next little bit is, is interesting. I'm going to play it and then we're going to get this 60 minutes clip where a lot of this apparently comes from uh, and it's wild as well. It was fascinating in that clip on 60 Minutes, decades later, when he was asked, you know, you did things to survive that would put anyone on the psychologist's couch forever. Do you have any remorse? And I think that's a fair question, not did you make the right decision when you were 15, but how do you feel now, decades later? And he told his biographers, and he said as much to, um, to 60 Minutes, that it was the most exciting time of his life. And that he has no compunction about it. And it was, if he didn't do it, someone else would. It's like a market. He feel, felt completely amoral. Here's a clip from 60 Minutes, uh, just in case you don't know what I'm talking about. So we'll get to the clip in a second. I will notice as well, he, he also says George Soros was 15. He was 13 and 14 in the stories that uh, Ezra told. So, I mean, but we don't really need to quibble with that. The other thing is he he makes this claim about like that he was excited. Now, I can't find anywhere that Soros said he was excited about his time at this time period. What I have found is that he said it was the happiest time of his life. And from reading the so you're like weird, Nazi occupation of Hungary. Why would he describe it as the happiest time of his life? And the way Soros describes it is that during this time he got to witness his dad save many lives, and so he was alive at a time when he got to see his father be a hero. And that's why it was the happiest time of his life. All right? You wonder how fucked up what Ezra is doing here? <laughs> like, this is so fucked up. This guy, like, to frame it in the way that Ezra is framing it is so fucking toxic to paint this, like, and say whatever you will about Soros now. Like, the guy is a liberal. He was friends with Karl Popper, who I, I disagree with uh, in many ways. Like... Whatever. But like to frame this guy's childhood growing up in like Nazi occupation and the things he said that like sound weird out of context, but is just a person admiring the fact that his dad saved lives during the Holocaust is really yeah. fucked up. Oh, my God. <laughs> now, we're going to play this 60 Minutes clip. And again, this is in the middle of the James Lindsay interview, okay? So James Lindsay's on pause here while, like, Ezra's just like, let's shoot the shit about George Soros. <laughs> and then plays the, the, this 60 Minutes clip. Now, I don't know if he played this while, like, James Lindsay is sitting there. that Like, because James Lindsay doesn't even respond to any of this. Because why would he? Fucking George Soros sued Ezra, right? So, like, I don't know if they just put in this clip later. But this is, like, a full, like, minute to two minute long clip from the 60 Minutes thing. And, like, I just want you to notice, for one, like, I actually think the 60 Minutes people are kind of fucked up in the way they even pose this question to George Soros. But then also, it's like, George Soros is response i th i think is kind of legitimate and actually contradicts some of the shit that ezra played so it's like or ezra said so it's like why would you play this clip ezra if you're like trying to manufacture this shit but here we go here's the 60 minutes clip when the nazis occupied budapest in 1944 george soros's father was a successful lawyer 
He lived on an island in the Danube and liked to commute to work in a rowboat. But knowing there were problems ahead for the Jews, he decided to split his family up. He bought them forged papers, and he bribed a government official to take 14-year-old George Soros in and swear that he was his Christian godson. But survival carried a heavy price tag. While hundreds of thousands of Hungarian Jews were being shipped off to the death camps, George Soros accompanied his phony godfather on his appointed rounds, confiscating property from the Jews. These are pictures from 1944 of what happened to George Soros's friends and neighbors. You're a Hungarian Jew who escaped the Holocaust mm -hmm. by posing as a, a Christian. Right. And you watched lots of people get shipped off to the death camps. Right. I was 14 years old. And I would say that that's when my character was made. In what way? That one should think ahead, one should understand and, and anticipate events. Uh, and uh, one, one is threatened. It was a tremendous threat of evil. I mean, it was a, a very personal experience of evil. My understanding is, is that you went out with this protector of yours who swore that you were uh, his adopted godson. Yes, yes. Went out, in fact, and helped in the confiscation of property from the Jews. That's right. Yes. I mean, that's, that sounds uh, like an experience that would send lots of people to the psychiatric couch for many, many years. Was it difficult? Uh, not, not, not at all. Not at all. It, uh, maybe as a child, you don't you don't see the connection, uh, uh, but it was it created no no problem at all. No feeling of guilt. No. For example, that uh, I'm Jewish, uh, and here I am watching these people go. I could just as easily be there. I should be there. None of that. Notice like the reframing of the question. So it's not even about like guilt of like confiscating the items, but now it's like guilt about like whether you sh you were like spared while other people like perished, right? Yeah. So just I wanted to acknowledge that weird shift of a question because often the this clip has been used out of context by right wingers for like a long time now to sort of make the case that like. Uh, he feels no guilt about the confiscating of Jewish items. But like, for one, that's not even true about the history. But like the person asking these questions is not asking them in like a very good way. Uh, and so like it's eliciting like these weird response. And you can clearly hear uh, George Soros thinking about it. You're going to get a lot of like, uh, here. But I, I just wanted to frame that weird question. Well, uh, of course, I uh, I could be on the other side, or I could be the one from whom it, the thing is being taken away. Uh, um, but there was no sense that I shouldn't be there because uh, that was uh, uh, well, actually, funny way. It's just like in markets that if I weren't there, of course, I wasn't doing it. But somebody else would, would 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 be taking it away anyhow. You know, was the whether I was there or not, I was only a spectator. The property was being taken away, so I had no role in taking away that property. So I had no sense of guilt. So uh, the reason I mentioned George, George Soros is because I, I know a little bit about him and how he likes to censor, and I regret the fact that 
the son did bend the knee to him. So this was all a roundabout way, just so he could be like, look, I understand George Soros is a, a censor. But like, noticed in that clip too, George Soros specifically, like, he's like responding, like, why should I feel guilt? The the analogy about the, about the market is kind of confused. But then he's like, but also I was a spectator. It's like, I didn't, I wasn't the one confiscating anyone. I was, I was a spectator. Which, like, that's left out of everything that, like, Ezra is framing here. Yet, like, that clearly means, like, he wasn't confiscating anyone. Like, he was not collaborating or working with the Nazis in any capacity. So why would you play this clip if you're, like, trying to, like, set it up that, like, yeah, okay, he was 15, but, like, uh, he still kind of worked with them, you know? Yeah. It's just very, I don't know, ridiculous. I, we just had to cover that. Like, I could not believe that, <laughs> that that this, like, why we needed to go on this fucking angle. Like, and, and the fact that this is in the middle of, like, this James Lindsay thing. Uh, Ezra, Ezra does go on to say some further things about Soros here, which is that somehow the Canadian government is working with the Open Societies Foundation for, like, immigration policy. And Ezra makes the, the claim that the Open uh, Society Foundation, which is funded by George Soros, crafted policy. And I can see no evidence of that. They claim that they have these documents through a freedom of information request. I've looked at the documents I don't see what they're seeing in those documents. It just seems like a bunch of people planning a, like, conference and, like, cool, plan a conference. I don't give a shit. <laughs> God. And this is supposed to be evidence that we're losing trust in society, uh, that society is crumbling. Lindsay also reflects on the crumbling of society. And so th this is, after Ezra mentions that, this is James Lindsay reflecting on what Ezra just said. And uh, when, when you dissolve trust in those you create conditions in which change is easy to bring about one way or another uh, it's what marxists would refer to as a as revolutionary conditions or revolutionary moment and that i share your destruction of trust in institutions i i even uh, would hesitate say that i were in a car accident or something and, and injured i would hesitate to go to the hospital for fear that they might attempt to vaccinate me against my wishes or, you know, something along these lines. And that's a tremendous loss of trust in an institution. So we get, here's my story about George Soros who threatened to sue me once. And then, and then James says, he's like, yeah, institutions are, are shitty. You know, like I'm for one lack of trust, trust means Marxist revolution is incoming. And also I'm afraid to get vaccinated. Uh, if I get in a car accident, <laughs> They're going to vaccinate me against my will. <laughs> yeah, they're going to be putting in the IV and they're just going to sneak a vaccine in there. Oh, my God. This is this was honestly the most bizarre fucking conversation I've ever heard in my life. Uh, this next clip, like, again, like so, so much of what James Lindsay said, I just didn't want to play because, again, this is already getting super fucking long. But like, he doesn't say much. This next clip also super short, but I wanted to play it just because this is someone who loves the smell of his own farts. So here we go. Here's this fucking clip. Okay. This is a, a moment, a crucial moment in the literal sense of the word cross crucial, uh, in, in history throughout the West where either we are facing a, a trajectory reminiscent of the 1930s in Europe, or we're facing a trajectory, uh, 
reminiscent of maybe the end of the 18th century in North America. And uh, I'm on the side of freedom in that fight, whichever way it goes. I don't even know that the dates, nothing he says makes sense, right? But it's the fact of like this guy, he's got to go, you know, crucial moment. Like, you know, crucial, like cross. Crucial, like it's literally like cross. Does him saying that give you any like further insight to what he's, does that help clarify anything? <laughs> it just, it's just like he could have said, we're at a crossroads right now. Like he, he didn't need to be like, ah, I know I the know. etymology oh, of the word crucial. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. I, I'm a smarty boy. I, I, know the, yeah. I know the etymology of words. I know that the English language is inf- infected with Christian words and whatever like it, it honestly feels like he's reading all these like postmodernist books that like often get into things like etymology but usually yeah. when you get into etymology you're doing it for a way to like like going into the etymology is supposed to like clarify or like recontextualize a word but here he, he, it's clearly he's just doing it because he's like i sound fucking smart yeah but that's that's what he does with everything right like like, that's exactly what all of those references to Baudrillard and Foucault were earlier. That's, like, his whole shit is just, like, ah, I say words sound smart. I math PhD. It, for the sake of time, and just because uh, this is brutal, I'm going to skip the next clip. It was a really long clip. They next get into, because they want to talk about trust in society, Ezra goes on a long rant about how... Uh, there's low trust in high trust societies and the low trust societies are basically Islamic countries. He doesn't like spell it out perfectly clear like that, but he just describes that how these low trust Islamic societies like, uh, sexual assault and rape is just rampant. And that when we let them into our countries, they also will continue to rape and shit. Like it's just a really vile and disgusting, uh, segment. Uh, but again, it's long and, uh, we can just move on from it like it's 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 just the the main reason i wanted to play it was just to highlight the fact of like we're not too far out from like recent events in london that shit happened and like this stuff continues to happen and ezra likes to sort of like hand wave as if like his rhetoric has nothing to do with that yet if you want to paint an entire people as being like low trust and therefore inherently rapists it's uh it's fucked up so but we don't we don't need to listen to that. Uh, I just wanted to make sure that we know that he said it because he's a piece of shit. Yeah. And weirdly enough, because whatever, this somehow goes from that to a discussion of like voter fraud again, because since low trust uh, that America is becoming a low trust society, apparently, I don't know, somehow those things are connected. And James Lindsay wants to tell Ezra uh, a story that he has about voter fraud in particular. So we're going to play that story. And again, notice that this is coming off of Ezra going on a long rant about like Muslims being rapists to James Lindsay just sort of like not addressing that like a normal human being and being like, hey, Ezra, that's kind of fucked up. He just kind of like goes with it. He's like, yeah, there are low trust societies and just uh, continues on with it. So I actually just briefly do have a story 
corroborating exactly what you just said. I was recently, fairly recently in California, just before the gubernatorial recall election that happened last fall. And um, somebody had there, it was, I was with a conservative and a Republican, and somebody had said, well, we received, you know, some peculiar number of ballots in the mail that you know, for or whatever. And, you know, somebody joked back, well, you should just vote with all of them. And they said, well, of course I wouldn't do that. And that's exactly what you're talking about is that, you know, the, the Republican side refused. They said, no, you're supposed to vote once and only once. And that's the right thing to do. And so that's the way it would be. Whereas the uh, other side, you know, sees four ballots and sees four opportunities, which should be, you know, illegal and should be preventable. But this is exactly the kind of situation. So people who want to have, I think this is an excellent way to frame going forward, is we need to be thinking in terms of how do we regain and regenerate trust in our high trust society? And what steps do we have to take to um, be sure that low trust individuals cannot take advantage of high trust individuals and make them into naive dupes? Uh, and I think that this is Again, we're at this crucial moment in our history throughout the West where we have to fight back for that high trust uh, circumstance. What was any of that? So the anecdote I wanted to highlight just because like, okay, you you saw some people make some joke about, haha, we could take those four ballots and just like commit voter fraud. Did they commit yeah. the voter fraud? Like that's not a crime. Like, And plus it's an anecdote. Four fucking people is not evidence that there was like widespread fraud in an election. Like... That, <laughs> but so then we get into this low trust, high trust thing. Now, this is the thing that Ezra was getting into in the clip that I decided not to play, which is this I idea that, like, somehow the people coming from low trust societies are taking advantage of high trust societies because the low trust societies see high trust societies as dupes. So in Ezra's case, he gives an analogy between... Uh, and again, it's an Islamophobic analogy and very disgusting and bigoted. But he claims that like they will come over and be taxi cab drivers and rape uh, women in their taxi cabs because they're like they're dupes. Uh, everyone is just trusting to get in a cab with us and I can take advantage of it because I am a Muslim from uh, uh, a Middle Eastern country and therefore bigotry you know so it's just fucking this is ezra what he was saying so then james Lindsay just riffs on that and he's like yeah like th this is also happening in the electoral system is that people are are see the high trust individuals as dupes and they're going to take advantage of it through our electoral system but then like putting both of those together i'm just like what does this mean like is the conclusion then that we should be a low trust society because if you're a low trust society then no one can dupe you because no one perceives anyone as a dupe to take advantage of, right? Or are they saying we should all be high society, but then what do you do with the low trust people that are going to see you as dupes? Like, nothing in what they're saying gives you any sort of like, like, how do you solve the problem that they're highlighting? I obviously do not think it's a problem and think they're just a bunch of pieces of shit and like none of it makes sense. But if you were to take what they're saying seriously... There, what's the solution? The thing is, like, I don't know if you can take any of it seriously because they're just spouting bullshit. Like, it's just, like, inflammatory rhetoric and not any... Like, there is no substance for someone to take seriously. Like, there isn't anything except for, like, wow, 
Muslims are apparently bad and um, voter fraud and just like a couple like key words that people can like listen in and be like, oh, yeah, I also Muslims and voter fraud. Yeah. And that's it. Like there isn't anything beyond that. It's gross, but you're right. Yeah. And and it's just amazing to me that like people like they eat it up because they're like, you're, you're saying exactly what I want to hear. And then that's that's it. That's all they need. But I mean, like uh, the reason why I bring up the London thing is like there's ramifications for the shit that they're saying. I mean, like if, yeah, if no, anything, there's a the ramification thing, right? like, for the thing that Lindsay's saying, which is January 6th. You know what I mean? But at the same time, like that isn't a, a result of them being like them explicitly like saying anything. They're just saying, like, random inflammatory rhetoric because, one, they can't be held accountable for that. And, two, like, this way they can just kind of, like, speak off their mind without having to prepare anything, without having to, like, actually think about anything. They just say whatever bullshit and know that their audience will get something out of it, regardless of what that something is. Yeah. And, you know, something, sometimes the thing that they get out of it is, oh, yeah, let's go commit mass murder. Yeah. Like, and that, yeah, no, it's just, like, extremely fucked every way you look at it. They end, so somehow this veers off into, like, a segment on fact checkers. And so they're, they're talking about how, like, fact checkers are stupid because CNN once fact checked the Babylon Bee, which is a conservative satirical website. Okay. So... This is when I told you I was, I was going to come back around where James Lindsay is going to mention the critical theorists again. And so I, I figure we'll end on this note. This is him sort of talking about, uh, uh, like, so again, James is going to agree with the critical theorists, but then he's also upset that they're right. In the U.S., I constantly hear trusted sources or reputable sources, which is unfortunate if that is a captured definition. Uh you know, reputable to whom and to whom's to whose benefit, as the critical theorists would instruct us in their very kind of paranoid way that you have to to look at society. And so, I hate that they are making this kind of critical, low trust, even postmodern view of society true. But that's because they've they've weaponized it against us, and we have to get we have to we have to take them out of these positions of power and get back to a society where we can trust our institutions. So you see, he's agreeing with the postmodernists because they made the world the way that it is. So what they're saying is true, but that's also why it's a problem. See? Okay, so yeah, I guess I was wrong earlier in that he is he is a right he is the equivalent of a right-wing analyst looking at the Japanese economy in, like, the 60s and 70s and then reading Marx and being like, huh, this seems kind of similar. They fucking planned it this way. (laughs) But he's doing that about, like, Foucault. Like, he's doing that being like, oh, whoa. The deep state read Foucault and then made the world like Foucault did because Foucault was dumb and didn't... wasn't actually describing any real phenomena. But... Then other people read him, and they made what he wrote true, just like 1984. This interview was just wild. Like, I, it was incoherent, uh, spanned many subjects that were just loosely tied together, and then ends on this, where, like, 
I mean, Ezra, or not Ezra, Lindsay kind of hits on an interesting point here about like reputable sources. Like what, what is a reputable source? How do you like figure that out? But like, rather than just like, get like trying to like problematize that or address it in any meaningful way, he's like, somehow brings it back to it's like there's a problem that we're all fighting over reputable sources because they're paranoid and thinking like what it's paranoid to wonder whether a source is reputable or not (laughs) but it's like you can't just eliminate bias like there's a like there's a reason why these postmodern thinks thinkers are going in this direction because it's like yeah we're all biased like we should be like critical of our own information we should like be analyzing and reanalyzing these things (laughs) Nothing was biased until the paranoid <laughs> critical theorists wrote about it, Off and Hayden. then somebody Off. read it and was like, ah, we should start being biased. That's a good idea, Foucault. My God. And if we only overturn our institutions to bring them back to the way they used to be, that mythical past that we all remember and love, then things will be all right. If things were just like the Bush era, you know, when nobody in the government lied, when nobody <laughs> in the media misled anybody, when there were no biases to be had. When we were proud to be an American. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we got two more days. They're super quick. Nothing happened on them. The The 13th, Ezra is mad about Stephen Gubo because he had an interview in the Narwhal and Ezra says that the Narwhal is funded by George Soros's Tides Foundation, and therefore they're not real journalism, apparently. But, uh, sure. I mean, like, what about if they're funded by conservative think tanks? Like, then they're automatically journalism? Like, I don't know. Stupid, stupid argument. We can just sort of, like, zip past that. But the funny thing that comes out of this bit about Stephen Gilbo is that apparently uh, Justin Trudeau gave Gilbo a 40 item like list of things to do and this is what uh Ezra has to say about receiving a 40 item to-do list on the one hand a 40 point to-do list is the sign of an inherently unserious person on the other hand it's the sign of a revolutionary a communist really someone who wants to remake the entire society, the entire economy. So yeah, that that actually does sort of make sense. It's terrifying. Anyways. Didn't you know it's simultaneously unserious, but also the sign that it's a revolutionary and it's terrifying. (laughs) Making lists. Didn't you? No, but it's 40 items. That's communism. Part of his argument is like 40 items is too hard. That's too much. So it's like you have to be unserious. Or you're a communist because you want to just revolutionize and do too much. What if I'm both? I just, like 40 items? Seriously? Like that's like where you draw the line? Like what if one of the items is like tie your shoes? Like I just, it's amazing that he's, he's so caught up in that. 40 items? 40! 40 items. Too much. I do kind of want to see what that list is. Like what are the 40 items? How big are they? How small are they? Is one of them change your hairstyle, Stephen? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Again, he like he also does the thing with, with calling Gibo a criminal over and over again without mentioning what Gibo did, which was probably the only cool thing that Gibo ever did in his life was hang a banner off the CN Tower saying that Bush and Canada were climate killers. So I'm still mad that like he didn't name anybody in Canada because then he wouldn't have gotten a job with the Liberals. You're probably right. So then we're now on the uh, Friday. 
And this, Ezra spends the opening half uh, talking about how Elon Musk is a hypocrite because he says climate is the climate change is real, but he also builds rockets. And I'm like, sure. well, there's an element in which I'm like, cool, let's make fun of Elon Musk. But then the other element is like, yeah, but he is right about the climate change thing. <laughs> you know, say what you want about him doing the space thing. Like, yeah, make fun of him. But like him agreeing in the scientific consensus on climate change is the one thing that you can be like, sure, we'll give it to you, Elon. <laughs> it was very low bar, but we'll give it to you, you know. But then extending from this. Because somehow, the, like, I couldn't tell what this opening piece was supposed to be about, but it somehow had to do with, like, the elites. But then, like, Ezra had to, like, spin it at the end to make it, like, there's a reverse thing that's happening uh, where there's an elite that's being targeted by the masses in, like, a, a not good way. And that is Queen Elizabeth. Uh, and the reason why she's being targeted in a negative way is because she was forced to wear a mask at her husband's funeral, even though, like, COVID isn't that bad. So it's like, and he, she, even though she's the queen and she's the monarch and we need to respect her and do everything that she says, somehow she was bullied by her servants to wear the fucking mask. It doesn't fucking matter, dude. She's been dead for months now. Like, it's, come on, get over it. Like... I was anticipating when he brought up the queen that he, I was like, oh, he's going to go negative on the queen and then spins it that the servants, the servants bullied the poor queen. That's that's the thing we have to be worried about. Actually, I kind of don't want to say it, but also I'm going to because like, I hope that whenever the episode comes out is like somehow the day that the queen's death is announced. That would just be very wonderful. Um, that's going to be such a shit show. I can't wait to see Ezra cover that. I I almost I I I anticipate it. I feel, <laughs> I feel like it's just gonna be like our our righteous queen. We have lost something so great. See, I want him to become a committed monarchist. That would be a very funny like twenty twenty two. He is. Arc. He's a hardcore monarchist. But for Prince Charles, <laughs> future King Charles. No. Okay. Like, yeah. 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 Right. Like I want him to be like no 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 the divine right of kings. It's not just Queen Elizabeth. It is the House of Windsor. Like, who's, who's the one with uh, with the ones who left the monarchy recently? Is that Harry? Uh, Harry, yeah. Okay, so I Meghan think Markle. he likes William. So if like William became the monarch, he'd be cool with it. Uh, that I do, but I don't think it's going to skip. I think it is going to go to Charles, unless Charles just goes, "You could have it, William," or like whatever, and they pass it on. But because he has spoken, he has said kind words about William. I, I honestly mm. don't know his opinion on Charles. I don't think he's ever really, like, talked about him, so... King Bill, you know? What did you say? <laughs> I said King Bill. King Bill? Yeah, William. Oh, okay. King Bill. That... That's terrifying. I can look at that. <laughs> King Bill on the bill. It's... <laughs> yeah, yeah. God, and that would be, like, the new nickname for, like, a 20... The William? <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking the King Bill, but sure, yeah. <laughs> Give me that Willy.
before you get into your bit, I do want to say sorry for the length of this episode, but we couldn't we couldn't not cover that George Soros bit. That had to happen. That was a, a wild adventure. So thank you for indulging me in this long ass episode. Uh, read an article by Briar Patch Magazine called "Canada and the Crisis of Capitalism." I was released February 2020, so like, it doesn't get up to date on COVID, but it is a pretty good like summary of like what an explanation of what capitalism is and like within the Canadian context in particular uh, with some particular attention towards like uh, how we fared post 2008 um, because we didn't have the housing market crash that the US did um, and then also like getting into colonialism and extractivism and a little bit of other stuff Uh, and then also um donate to this GoFundMe that is uh, really local to us, um, that it's an attempt to uh, provide children in London, Ontario with uh, access to actual good quality masks, uh, which has become even more relevant both with like the return of school in person and also um, the Ontario government shipping out masks that were (laughs) seemingly for like giant headed people because they didn't even fit like 18 year olds comfortably. But they were expected to be worn by like kindergartners. You got to check um, out the pictures. It's incredible seeing these kids yeah. with just massive masks hanging off their face. So uh, thanks, Doug Ford. Thank you so much. Woohoo! Love our future second-term premier. And uh, shout out to Mandy Rachel on Twitter, who's been doing a lot of work on this front. And uh, yeah, th- there's a lot of people that are immunocompromised still, and they almost don't uh, are never considered in the rollout of these get back to school get back to work initiatives and just the fact that like we're just like fuck old people and fuck people with immunocompromised systems like is just uh, messed up it's messed up we should care about all people uh no matter what so uh yeah, help out people who are in a desperate situation because the government's not giving them better masks and uh, they're, they're kids and they could come from families that are, are desperate. So, And if you support and enjoy what you've heard so far from us, please give us a few bucks over on patreon.com slash imperial news. If you want to stay informed about what we are doing, you can also find us on Twitter at Imperial News with a Z. We have a Discord set up. We do Twitch streams every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can find the clips of those streams at youtube.com slash Imperial News Podcast. And you can find all the links in the show notes. Lastly, you can email us any question at imperial.fake.news at gmail.com. Special thanks to my friend Mason Tickle for the transition beats. You can find his work at strianum.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening. And 40 item to-do lists, you cancel. Albumbia, Albumbia, how lovely are your wheat fields.